It's time for Sex Talk with Lou. Lou Paget on TogiNet. So, have you ever wondered if you're normal or why you feel distant from your partner? Why they keep doing that? Want to recreate a truly connected relationship? Or wondered, how do I tell my partner or kids about things? Then this is your chance to be a fly on the wall and learn about one of the most important parts of our health, our sexual health. Lou Paget is a certified sex educator, an international best-selling author, and not only will Lou and her guests discuss the most current research, they will put you at the head of the class on good, solid, scientifically-based information and how it will impact you and your family. Known for delivering information about sexuality and relationships sans the sleaze factor while retaining all the accuracy, fun, and the you're kidding factor. Let's get to it. Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet. And now, here's your host, Lou Paget. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for being with Sex Talk with Lou this Wednesday evening. For those of you who have listened to my show and for those of you who might be new to it, one of the things that I am known for is that I am a demon for accurate information particularly in the area of having science-based information that supports good sexual health and good sexual health behavior. And I have to say there aren't very many sources that one can go to ongoingly that have a really broad-based science background that I can rely on. And my guest this evening is one of those like handful of people that is like, as we would say, my go-to person. She also happens to be one of the only, one of only two people who I have taught to do my seminar, to do the presentation of my ladies' seminar. And in addition to which, she is also a clinical research auditor. So she is the person who, when there is a research trial going on or a drug that they're wanting to try and they're trying to put it into the marketplace and look at its efficacy and does it work and is it doing what they are hoping it would do or that they expect it to do. And in that capacity, she has truly opened my eyes to whether or not we are getting good science or whether or not we are getting bad science or science that is not giving us what we're really wanting to hear. So so my guest this evening also happens to be someone who I've known an awfully long time, and it is my identical twin sister, Didi. So, Didi, are you on with me now? I absolutely am. <laughs> Good evening, my dear. How are you? <laughs> I'm fabulous. Thank you. And unfortunately, Dee Dee and I do not get to spend a lot of FaceTime together because myself, I'm in Los Angeles, and she is in Toronto. So I trust you were able to hear what it was I was speaking about um, as I was introducing you. Absolutely. Okay. Now, the one thing I remember you telling me when you first started doing your um, auditing work, and you've seen it from the ground up. You've been, you know, the person who enrolled the people who did the, you know, the, to give them the, the medication or whatever it is being tested to the person who's looking from the top down on whether or not all the protocols were followed. Correct. Now, 
just give people a little bit of your background. Um, I have functioned in the clinical research field uh, for over 20 years, and I've fulfilled three main roles. The first one was as a study coordinator, and as you said, Lou, that's the hands-on work with the actual patients. Uh So I was responsible for doing practically everything with the individuals and acting as the interface between them and the investigator, who was usually a physician. Right. Now, are you the person who made the call on whether or not this person belonged in the study? Usually. Okay. Ultimately, all of the responsibility for a clinical trial lands at the feet of the investigator. But without a doubt, any investigator worth their salt knows that if they do not have a good study coordinator, their their trial will not be well done. Okay. So I was essentially, I did 90% of the work. Mm-hmm. And so I was the person who ensured that the people fit, they met the inclusion, exclusion. I gave them their medication. I did blood work, et cetera. Then I went into the role as a clinical research associate or a monitor, and then I was the eyes of the sponsor who went in to see that the work was being done according to their requirement. Okay. For the last nine years, I've been a clinical research auditor, which has the regulatory and legislative requirement that I make sure in a much more global view that the site is being conducted properly, the patients are being treated well and safely, but also that their ethics has been followed and that regulation and legislation has been adhered to, that the pharmaceutical product, that the actual investigational product has been maintained as it is supposed to be. So it's a a much broader reach. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, when I go in, it's to see that this has been done appropriately, and sometimes it's not. Because I know that when, just as an example, you have told me that there have been times when, and you can say sort of like the category of what the product is, but we can't certainly name names. But when drug trials and studies are being done, and they're being done on people for whom the drug will be marketed to, and none of those people are in the actual study. And that's um, not uncommon, that the inclusion and exclusion criteria for the actual clinical trial are so specific that ultimately when that drug comes to market, it is going to be marketed to individuals who would never have fit into the clinical trial. So Can you give an example of something that, it would, that, that would, would be part of that? Um, uh, for example, individuals who have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease Mm-hmm. They have many of the many of those individuals are maintained on a on a very careful balance of medications, some of which would mean that they could not be part of a clinical trial, for example, a new type of antibiotic, and those are people with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease are much more at risk for lung infections, so right. they wouldn't meet the criteria to receive this new antibiotic because of something else they were taking, but invariably they would be the target market for this new antibiotic because these are the folks who would frequently have resistant types of bacteria because they've been exposed to so many antibiotics. Right. Now, and for me, when I would, you know, I'm looking at things and you are like kind of like my eyes and ears on what is being done within the, you know, the hard science research area, I look at, okay, someone who has, you know, 
chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, they are going to be having an issue with their body and whether or not they can be sexual and whether or not they're, you know, going to be functional. And exactly. And that's when I look at this and I go, how can, you know, because we, we spoke actually earlier today and you were telling me of the one gentleman, what's his name, Ben Goldacre? Ben Goldacre. Right, who has the book Bad Science, and what he looks at is whether or not, you know, we're being told the truth here. And, and because, um, Ms., well, it's Dr. Goldacre, because he's a, he's a medical doctor, but he's also right. an epidemiologist. And uh, he's, he's very clear about the fact that there are, the biggest issue is that the some of the protocols and all protocols have a section in them on the statistics. Mm-hmm. They will then use those statistics, but it is a question of did they use all the data and are they editing the data to only show the positive results? And that has been a massive, massive issue. Well, I know you've been told to change things. Yeah. Yeah, I actually had a, a monitor who came to see me. and um, this is, But you were auditing, right? No, actually, I was a study coordinator. So I was at okay. that point, that was my, my first introduction to clinical research, and I was working with folks who had um, uh, respiratory uh, problems. Mm-hmm. And the... Uh, individual who was the representative from the, the pharmaceutical company came in and she put some of my documents in front of me and she said, you're going to have to change this. And it was the patient that had an adverse reaction to the, and I don't know if it was the medication they were on or something else they were taking, but you report everything. If they had extra hangnails, you write it down. And so I had written down that, you know, they'd had some adverse uh, response and this person said, you're going to have to change it. And I said, why? And their response was, well, because biostatistics is not happy with this. And I, No and names, I, just biostatistics. Just biostatistics. And I said, really? And, and I looked at this person and I said, you know what? We really have a bit of a uh, concern here. And I said, heaven forbid that what I report actually reflects what happened with the patient. And I said, you take this back to biostats, and if they have a problem, you have them call me. And, and it's done. Back. Right. Now, one of the things that, for those of us in California, that has just been put in is Jerry Brown has signed a bill um, for vaccination for human papillomavirus, HPV, mm-hmm. for um, 12-year-olds who can give consent on their own without having their parents know. And uh, both of us know um, another very good friend of mine who has been a guest on the show, Dr. Sherry Tenpenny, who is a vaccine choice physician. One of the things that they are doing is, she said they are showing these young girls, you know, horrific films at the beginning of the day that show issues with someone who young who was dying of human papillomavirus, which, honest to God, people have to know that is so, 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 so rare. And then what these girls do is they go, oh, my God, well, uh, well I don't want that to happen to me. So they now have a bill that has interrupted and interceded into parental rights so that the parents don't even know that 
these children have been vaccinated, and if there is, as we know, severe adverse events, the school's not necessarily responsible. It's the nurse that administered it. But as you and I both know, HIPAA laws prevent the school and the teacher and the nurse from revealing to the parents that the vaccine was given. Wow. Now, we have 30 seconds until our first break. Okay. So what, for me, is an issue with this, parents are here to take care of their children's health. And to have this kind of a bill with this kind of money behind Merck coming in to say, we're going to, you know, we're going to take away your rights and have your children make the decision, big no-no. So we'll, we'll talk about that after we come back from the break, because, and we'll give you the, the details on human papillomavirus and vaccine and et cetera. Here come the tunes. Please stay with us. We will be right back after this break. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Paget. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lipman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Be here for Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Trisha will dig deep into topics that matter most to women, inspiring women to make a change in their own lives and to make a difference in the world and maybe even deep within their own hearts. Trisha is a wife, mom, speaker, family expert, and author of 24 books. For more information on Trisha and Living Inspired, go to her website, trishagoyer.com. That's T-R-I-C-I-A-G-O-Y-E-R.com. Trisha's vision is to be the voice of hope and possibility for women of all ages. Her intention is to serve ordinary women by encouraging extraordinary things with God's help. Trisha expresses real life, real hope for real women. Is there more living for you to do? Yes. Start living inspired. Living Inspired with Trisha Goyer. Thursday afternoons at 4, 3 p.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Welcome back, everyone. And tonight, I have a very special guest on. It is my identical twin sister, Dee Dee. 
who is in Toronto, myself, I'm here in Los Angeles. If anyone has any questions in the area of the testing of clinical work that is being done on bodies, on things in the area of sexuality, or just a question that you'd like to ask us kind of globally, the number to call in is 877-864-4869. And I'm repeating that again for you. 877-864-4869. Now, just before we were on the break, I was talking with um, Didi about a, a bill that has just been signed by Governor Jerry Brown here in California. And it gives the permission for 12-year-olds to sign for their own, for the administration of the human papillomavirus vaccine from Merck called Gardasil. And the fact that they do it on their own and the school nurse gives them the, um, they sign for it themselves, the nurse, the parents are not, don't get to see the health records because of HIPAA. Regulations. So, Didi, given that you know all of this stuff, exactly what is HIPAA? Well, HIPAA itself um, came into being um, in 1996. And mm-hmm. the idea behind it, HIPAA stands for Health Insurance Portability and Protection Act. And the basic premise was to ensure that an individual if they left a, an employment position where they had health insurance, they would be able to receive health insurance if they went to another position. And, and this is a very common theme that um, individuals in the U.S. had. They wouldn't leave a perhaps incredibly unpleasant job because they had health insurance and they couldn't be guaranteed that they would have it at a new position. So mm-hmm. that was, that was the, the kernel behind that. Now, what has happened is that HIPAA itself is a, it's a protection for essentially the release of information. And when right. I go into a clinical research site, obviously in the U.S. because it's a U.S. law, I have to ensure that individuals, in addition to signing the informed consent that they're required to, to be part of a clinical trial, that they have either signed a separate HIPAA consent form, which allows for release of information for the study, or that HIPAA content is actually embedded into their consent form that they've signed. But it's, it's a pretty far-reaching document. And now, as you were saying, now you have parents who cannot have that information disclosed to them that their children have been vaccinated. Right. And well, here's the other thing that I think people have to be aware of. And we, we, we speak about this all the time. Where do you go to determine good science? Where do you go on the Internet to find information? You know, Lord knows, you know, when it comes to the area of sexuality, it is a very muddied area. And the same thing when it comes to health, because whoever is the person who can, you know, load up the most stuff and put the most stuff forward for an SEO, for a search engine optimization, mm-hmm. they're the ones that, that are going to come up to the top. My concern with the human papillomavirus is if we look at the actual hard science, and this is National Institutes of Health, this is CDC, Center for Disease Control, we know that the average age of diagnosis is 47 for cervical cancer. We also know there are a number of different types of human papillomavirus. 
We also know that, and I'm going to use the work of Dr. Diane Harper, who is one of the researchers who worked on Gardasil with Merck and the development of it, the vaccine, and also worked on GlaxoSmithKline's product, Cerevix, which in speaking with Dr. Tenpenny, one of the things that she said, the Cerevix is just, it's mainly, it, it's only in Europe. It has not been okayed to be in the U.S. She said, it is just a nasty, nasty vaccine. And she said, young girls are dropping dead like flies as a result of it. And that's where this HIPAA thing is, for me, a real concern, this Having 12-year-old give consent, HIPAA protects it. The parents, something may happen. There may be a severe adverse event. There may be something that happens two weeks afterwards. The parents have no idea, and no one will properly disclose that. And to me, this is an erosion of parental rights. And, you know, when we have severe adverse events, as you know, they often don't want it to be reported. Or it, or it doesn't get captured. And, doesn't get captured. They, they rule something else out and say that person wasn't part of a really good stat, right? Well, one of the things that has, has happened certainly more recently is there has been a very strong push to bring um, compounds to market much more quickly. Mm-hmm. The challenge there is that they haven't had sufficient time uh, as being essentially exposed to human beings and once a compound is marketed, then the capturing of those adverse effects or adverse events is I'm, it, it's up to the uh, the onus is on the physician who has prescribed it to report that. And certain things that that were you know that were tested for one indication turned out to have a completely different reaction in the in the population they were testing it in perfect example is Viagra. Viagra Mm -hmm. was an anti-anginal. That's what they were testing it for. They were testing it. And explain what an anti-anginal is. I was just about to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Angina is when the heart muscle, it's the pain that the heart muscle has when there is a decrease in blood flow to the muscle. Essentially, the muscle is being starved for oxygen. Mm -hmm. And an anti-anginal is a compound that you will take to help dilate the blood vessels of the heart so that that heart muscle continues to get proper oxygenation and blood flow. And what happened was they were giving this compound to this population of older men who had angina problems, heart, heart pain problems, and at the end of the clinical study, none of the men were returning it, and they wondered why. And then I right. found out that all of these gentlemen were suddenly now being able to be profoundly sexually active, and they went, oh, we're on to something here. It's been a blockbuster for all the companies. Mm-hmm. And that and it was, was not what it was tested for. Right. Um, because the men weren't returning their samples, right? That's right. <laughs> well, one of the things that when I go back to Dr. Diane Harper, who was the lead researcher for both of these vaccines, her comment, and this was an hour-long presentation that she was doing at a major um, vaccine conference, her comment was, still, there is nothing that, no vaccine that is better and is as efficacious and as preventative for cervical cancer than screening. And what that means is pap smears. 
What she also said is, we don't know if, you know, you give a child who's 12 a vaccine, they are not going to be sexually active until, you know, maybe they're 18 or 19. That efficacy doesn't carry through. So you've given them something and loaded up their bodies with things that they don't need and that doesn't do what they're telling you it does. And she said the best thing still, bar none, is screening and with a pap smear and prevention. And, you know, 12-year-old girls are not being sexually active. Well, the the, um, other concern is, when you're talking about them receiving the, you know, the actual, you know, injection, it's a series of injections. Three of them. And right. so with each dose, there is obviously that much more exposure and that much more potential for them to have a serious adverse reaction. And if the parents don't know, wow, that well, would be, I, I'd be terrified if I was a parent. I can't understand how that actually would get passed as a law because it's only, it isn't just this one gentleman's recommendation to put it through. This has to go through other individuals, and these are people who are parents. Thank you. Thank you. Here's the other thing. There's sometimes people will say, well, by giving them you know, something like this, it means it gives the girls sort of, you know, carte blanche to be sexual. Please. You know, this, this is, that's not the case at all. But for me, my concern is here is some science that in my mind, and Dr. Tenpenny and I talked about this actually this morning, and she said, you know, if I was a physician going into medical school and graduating right now, she said, I'll tell you flat out, the big thing that I'd be doing right now, she said, I would be studying infertility because we have a nation coming forward that is having so many health impacts on their sexual health and their sexual functioning with the drugs that they're being given, with the food that they're being treated, with the things they're putting on their bodies. We have a generation coming forward where I look at the grandparents and I go, listen, you are basically, as a result of saying, not stopping some of these things, you are basically you know, sentencing your children to be sterile, your grandchildren to be sterile. Is that what you want? And that usually has them go like, whoa, because the number of, um, and this was a conversation I had with a physician um, on a flight to an audit, and he was going down to a urology uh, conference. And, of course, urology has to do with the urinary tract and, and in both males and females. And what he was concerned about was that he has seen in his own practice multiple examples of the children who have been born to individuals who used fertility treatments. Mm -hmm. And he said, these children who are now 12, 13, 14, and are coming in, you know, going through puberty, he said, they have a plethora, they have a massive number of developmental problems that are only becoming evident once they start going through puberty. And and I don't know if that, I don't know, who has even touched on that? Oh, you know, we have 30 seconds until the break, and I know this show has not exactly, you know, been the world's most uplifting, but I'm going to tell you, <laughs> to put it mildly, I really think that parents and people deserve to know more about these impacts on themselves and their children and on their future. I mean, we're talking about family and the creation of family. We are going to be going to our tunes. 
Please stay with us. This is the Halfway Through Sex Talk with Lou, and I'm here with my identical twin sister, Di Paget. Come back with us after the break. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Paget. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. Multi-ethnic church with Mark DeMoz. Thursday afternoons at 1, noon central, is a show that passionately addresses the question, if the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is your local church? They call us Yes, increasingly, our diverse population and the diverse families it's producing is reshaping the face of the local church as people are beginning to recognize the power and beauty of walking, working, and worshiping God together with others of different backgrounds. How can your church overcome the obstacles, and why should you even try? Join a live chat with guests from around the country and the world to learn the effectiveness of churches in the 21st century beyond race and class distinction. This show has its pulse on what it will take for the church to find real reconciliation in our generation. So tune in for the Multi-Ethnic Church with Mark DeMoss, Thursday afternoons at 1, noon central, here on toginet.com. Parents, if you feel overloaded, overworked, underappreciated, and seriously stressed out, the Parents' Plate is here to help you. The Parents' Plate with Brenda Nixon, Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet. It's time to build stronger families through parent empowerment, and that's what the Parents' Plate does. The Parents' Plate understands the busyness of life and balancing child rearing and other commitments. Brenda Nixon will be talking to noted experts and authors on all issues, from teething to teen driving. Brenda Nixon is a nationally recognized speaker to parents and child care professionals and author of the award-winning The Birth to Five book. From Fox 4 in Kansas City to schools and synagogues to businesses to bookstores, conferences to churches, audiences rave that Brenda engages, educates, and encourages. For more information on Brenda and her books, check out her website, brendanixon.com. The Parents Plate is loaded with information and affirmation. The Parents Plate with Brenda Nixon. Tuesdays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Welcome back, everyone. We're halfway through Sex Talk with Lou for this Wednesday evening. My guest this evening is my identical twin sister, Dee Dee, Di Paget. And um, one of the things we were speaking about before the break is, you know, the, the impact for, for parents and grandparents. They have to understand how these things are impacting their children's development and I know, being one of the best-selling authors worldwide in the area of sexuality, the one thing that will not be looked at is these two hot potato subjects. One's called children and sexual function development. That will not be a study that will be done. And 
as you were saying, Didi, the urologist who was talking about the you know the the people who are having you know triplets and you know more, and it's kind of like the developmental issues that these children have are they're they're profound for some and, of them. And of course, I mean it's it, there's there's it's such a double-edged sword. They are so thrilled after going through the incredible anguish of fertility treatments and everything that that entails, which is an emotional roller coaster that nobody wants to be on. Right. And, and to then finally have to have started their family only to find out that now there's all of these issues that are coming forward. And, and you know, you're saying to yourself, why wasn't anybody there to give them full disclosure? Well, and... Here's the other question, though. Would they have listened had they been told? I can't answer that, and I don't know that they would be able to either. Yeah. I, I very earnestly don't. But what I do see is the growing impact of the products that I, that kids are being given, the amount That's of meds right. they're being given. Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, it's just when you have 19-year-old males who are having erectile issues as a result of their study bodies, whether you know that's Adderall or Ritalin, excuse me, that yeah. part of their anatomy should be, as men have described it, you know, like a steel rod that they can, you know, pound nails with. Yeah. And that's an issue. But now, here's one of the things I was going to ask you. When you have been doing your your clinical research, whether as the, you know, study coordinator or as the monitor, and probably not as an auditor, but have you ever had anyone ask you how these these things might impact their sex life? Uh, I have. And really? Yeah, I have. Uh, and part of that is because um, as a study coordinator, it's very much a one-on-one um, situation. Mm-hmm. And um, usually it was uh, an individual who at the time was hospitalized, uh, not someone on an outpatient basis. Uh, and it would be uh, because I've been involved with cardiology studies. Mm-hmm. And that cardiology is actually pretty, pretty frank about, you know, they have, you know, sex in the heart for individuals following a, a heart attack. You know, that's, one of, that's usually one of the first questions that a man will ask. You know. A man will ask. Will women? Uh, they do. They do. Okay. Certainly, certainly that has shifted, um, but it's, it was invariably, it, it was men that I was dealing with, and that was because of the exclusion of the entry criteria for the um, study protocol, is that women were not allowed to be in it. Right, um, and and so here you have a drug tested on less than fifty percent of the population, but it's given to women as well. Yeah, yeah. And the reason that they were excluding the women was in case they got pregnant. Yeah. And so any woman from age fourteen to what fifty-five? Well, fifty-five, you know, or or other sort of physical parameters, you know, that they'd had a you know a hysterectomy, et cetera. So there, um, it, it it was. It was depending on the protocol, but certainly the one of the biggest things that that was a concern is to have a you know to have a child conceived while an individual was on a medication because they really didn't know what it would do. The theatrogenic meaning you know turn them into a little monster. Yeah. 
teratogenic and, and effect. Actually, it's teratogenic. Teratogenic. Oh, thank you. Now, you were asking what would be somewhere for people to go to get accurate, clear information. Right. I, I would direct people to um, the Cochrane Group website. Mm-hmm. The Cochrane Group is, they look systematically at clinical research. Okay. And what I, and, and they, have, they have a phenomenal wealth of knowledge. Um, the Cochrane Group is actually one of the things that Dr. Goldacre talks about in his book, the one called Bad Science, and then he's got in little letters, Quacks, Hacks, and Big Pharma Hacks. <laughs> Big Pharma Flax, I should say. Anyway, he, what he remarks about, um, he talks about it in his book, but he also has a, um, a TED, T-E-D, mm-hmm. uh, film, a uh, video of him, um, from 2000 and, uh, 2011 actually. Mm-hmm. And what he, July 2011. And what he talks about on there is that the Cochrane Group has been trying for the last three years to access the information on the efficacy of Tamiflu. And his comment was in this, in the TED video, he comments that they have looked at the results for the impact of Tamiflu, and it reduces the symptomatology, the symptoms of someone who has flu, by about half a day. And his right. comment was, you know, it, it's unfortunate you have the flu and you feel absolutely dreadful, but is that compound worth the billions of dollars that governments have spent on it. And the Cochrane Group has been trying to get from the European uh, Medicines Agency that information for three years. Now, where is the Cochrane uh, Group located? Uh, they're actually, they're worldwide. Okay, so it's a, it's a it's the Cochrane it's, it's Group. Basically, or... It's basically like a think tank. Okay. An ethical think tank. Well, we love that. Yeah, they're, and they're great. I mean, the stuff that... The, so I would direct people... To that, um, there's PubMed, as in publication medica- public medica- um, medicine, right. um, is another good one. Um, it can get a bit sticky if people don't have a science background, because sometimes right. it's just it's absolutely confounding. Uh-huh. Um, but I, I, you know, the, the there are good websites. the The challenge is is, is weeding through them. Um, <laughs> Truly, because, I mean, for some of them, you and I both know, we have ended up having to become our own um, consumer advocates on the accuracy. Absolutely. There's times when even the physicians are not going to know the answers and have the, the clearest information because many times their information is coming from a drug rep. Well, that's an, an interesting point you bring up because... Um just recently, what has happened is that the, um, and this comes from the um, uh, journal Sentinel in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and this is, was one of their web posts. And what had happened is that the American Heart Association, uh, their annual scientific sessions, what they had done was that they had not allowed medical education presentations to come from or be done by pharmaceutical industry employees. And so essentially in the headline is 
drug firms banished from medical talks. And part of that is that, and then the second line is educational sessions should be free of industry. And that's been a massive push. Well, I, I mean, I, I know for me with the two organizations that I typically, well, I mean, there's three or four, but ASEC, which is the certifying group that is the, I am a, ASEC Certified Sex Educator, the American Association Sex Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, and also Quad S, Society for Scientific Study of Sexuality, and others, you know, STAR and WASP, they now specifically ask, is there any funding or is there any, you know, financial interest behind who, if you, if a study's being presented or if you're being brought in by a certain group or if they are the people who are doing... Yeah. Um, the, the disclosure, the, the the whole issue of disclosure has, I mean, has has become. It's. I mean, the reality is the pharmaceutical industry has a real problem with presenting themselves as having integrity, and uh, even as recently as yesterday, there was a web posting, and it had to do with the fact that the manufacturers of compounds of drug compounds will now be held accountable for the integrity, the purity, and um, the, the actual validity of what they're putting in their, in their tablet, in their capsule. And that means oh, no, you were talking, is this the thing you were talking about with the products coming in from China with the... Chi- with the melamine? The com- mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. So melamine, melamine, when you test... They, when they tested the milk, the formula that was being given to the, the children in China, the melamine was added to uh, enhance the testing so it showed that it had an, an appropriate um, protein. protein level. Well, you know, you probably don't want to have melamine in your baby's formula, which, of course, is why they had infants dying. Right. Uh, tell, melamine, tell people what melamine is. It's a plastic, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, well, but people of a certain age may remember that there was actually melamine tableware. Well, That's what it is. There still is. I mean, I went and looked online, and it's very easy and very malleable. So, you know, that's the thing that we were talking about yesterday. Is and that that was that was the melamine was also being added to pet food, and right. it's being brought in through one company that was actually, and you know, they were they were the the, the hub essentially, right. and you know. All of these other producers were taking this, you know, their ingredients, creating their own pet food. It was it was phenomenal the number of, of animals that were impacted and and suppliers that were impacted. And, and it was and it was melamine. Right, and here's the thing, and all it did was, you know, all it did. I mean, it impacted people's hearts and those things that they loved, their children and their animals. Exactly. And it was so that they could, you know, let's shave some money off it and let's put it, make it look like our stuff actually is what it is. Please stay with us. When I come back with my guest, my twin sister, Di Pagadelio, we're going to talk about the things that both of us have been asked as a result of presenting in my seminars. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with your host, Lou Paget. Techniques and tips are her specialty. She delivers bite-sized chunks of information you can use right away that work. So stand by for more sex talk when we get back after these. This is Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet.com. 
it's time to capture the simple piece of the Amish in your own life. Amish Wisdom with Suzanne Woods-Fisher. Thursday afternoons at 5, 4 Central. Each week, Suzanne will have conversations with guests about living a life that incorporates principles of the Amish without going Amish. She'll cover the practical, simplicity, slowing down, reducing clutter, putting the brakes on materialism, the historical, how have the Amish survived for 400 years, how can we hold on to what we hold dear, and the spiritual, treasuring important values, honoring the past, and increasing peace of mind. You don't have to become Amish to make personal peace a reality. Amish wisdom will help all of us live a simpler life. For more information, go to SuzanneWoodsFisher.com. With Amish wisdom, Suzanne offers us a glimpse into a world of peace, serenity, and total commitment to family and God. This show just might change the way you live your life. It's Amish wisdom with Suzanne Woods Fisher. Thursday afternoons at 5, 4 Central on toginet.com. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on Toginet with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. Everybody In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding. What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Mom with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on toginet.com. Welcome back to Sex Talk. Imagine having access to some of the best experts in the field of sexuality and sexual health so you can finally ask that question. Be it function, sensation, or something you've heard, this is the spot. It's Sex Talk with Lou on toginet.com. And now, back to your host, Lou Paget. Welcome back, everyone. We're into the final segment of Sex Talk with Lou. My guest this evening is my identical twin sister, Di Paget. And what we're going to talk about in this final segment is the different kinds of questions that we both might be asked when doing a presentation. Uh, Dee Dee is the only person, aside from one other woman, who I have trained to do my presentation. So when I have a large, large group, which on occasion I have had, you know, like, you know, 150 men in a room or 150 women, it's difficult for me to be different places because the presentation is, is very interactive. And I said to Dee Dee, I said, okay, so I know people were likely going to ask you a different question than they would me if, you know, slightly different, if we're walking down the hall. And your response was? <laughs> well, because these seminars are, are usual, particularly the 150, you know, men or women attending these, these are, are entrepreneurs that are attending a, a whole series of other sessions. These guys go to the source. Their very first question to me is, are you Lou? <laughs> I think that's hysterical. <laughs> but, no, but here's the thing. They might... I know that when I first started doing my presentations and the books came out, 
by virtue of, you know, you being my sister and Kath being my sister and Cher being my sister, people would ask you questions kind of like you became an expert by proxy. By proxy. Mm-hmm. And I know that when people know that they're, you know, it's going to be an easy thing to, you know, an easier way to ask the question. And I had asked you, so what do you think would be the area that, you know, more studies should be done or more clinical research should be done relative to sexuality? And your response was? Well, first thing out of the gate is is for individuals who have any kind of disability. And when I say disability, that, that means not just the ones that are visible, because 90% of disabilities are not visible. So, you know, I mean, and that's a huge field. And, you know, individuals who may not be able to be in, um, for example, crowded environments, who could never actually go out and socialize in a social scene, you know, for them, actually going to a bar would be, I mean, it, it would absolutely terrify them. So, mm-hmm. you know, and how do you, how do you interact with people? Certainly the Internet is one way, but most people want to have some personal contact and face-to-face time. So that would be, that's sort of first off um, the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, come back to me on that other later. Okay. Now, one of the things I did want to touch base on, uh, Dr. Eli Coleman, who is a oh, colleague yes. and, and friend of mine, I was just in Atlanta for the announcement of the, uh, we reached the $2 million funding level that we needed for the Joyce Lynn Elder's chair in sexual health education to be right. um, established. We still have to wait for the monies to come in, but we have established it. At that same time in Atlanta was the, um, it's the, the WPATH, so it's the, what is it, the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. And transgender has become a little, much more so on people's uh, horizons as a result of Chaz Bono. And, but I, I want people to know it is so much more common than people really have any idea. And one of the things that came out of this, the, um, the WPATH presentation is Dr. Coleman and their um, counsel stating that not conforming to gender is not a disorder, exactly. which is huge. So it doesn't pathologize things. Exactly. Which you and I both know is something that if people feel badly about something, there then becomes the silence to it, and then it just becomes sort of like a, a self-perpetuating, I have, you know, I have a problem. Well, and, and, and myself, having, having worked in outpatient psychiatry, the minute that you have a diagnosis, you have a stigma. And, yeah. And, you know, the, one of the biggest concerns I have with that kind of you have a disorder is that the majority of, well, all of the uh, categories under sexual and gender identity disorders in the DSM-4TR DSM stands for the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual, and that is what the American Psychiatric Association uses for their diagnostic criteria. 
DSM for TR. TR stands for the fact that it's had a um, uh, text revision. The concern I have with that is that each one of the categories that they have, what most people don't see is that it has the qualification that this conduct has to cause a disturbance in the individual that it causes them marked distress or interpersonal difficulty. When you and now when you say these things, what type of things? Um, what would you something of a sexual nature, something of behavioral nature? Oh, it's uh, I, and I'm speaking specifically under sexual and, and gender identity categories. Okay. Okay. And so they have, for example, um, sexual aversion. Uh, they have, you know, and that, and what it is is that it's it's a persistent condition as it presents. The challenge being, and I'm just going to step out of saying what all of the the categories are, because what's important is that the diagnostics and statistics manual focus on that standard word statistics. What they say is. Under each category, it has to be X number of these behaviors over a period of time. So it's four of these seven categories of behaviors. And most individuals, when they're actually being asked these questions, I mean, I would say to folks, go online and look at this. Say, well, that's not me. I don't do and But it has to have an impact on you. And it has to be something... If it doesn't impact you and cause you distress, if it's an activity between two consenting adults, it's not a problem. Right. That's one of the things, the Lautman study, where they reworked one specific question, and then they asked women if they'd had one of these four impacts in the last six months. Were you not interested in sex? Were you not having an orgasm? Were, did you have a drop in desire? Did you have... Now, what woman has not had that happen over the past six months? I mean, that's just, you know, four of them. And as a result of what that... What man hasn't had that happen? Thank you. And then what happened is that Who they then... accurately ended, reported it, may I be so bold? Right. But then what happens is then that, that one question out of a, just a huge, massive study ended up going on to be the thing by which they said women had sexual dysfunction and sexual disorder. Well, who wants to put their hand up in the air and go, I have a disorder, I have a dysfunction? Now, I take that back because I do know there are some people who do, who do want to have that as kind of like, I have an issue. But for the majority of people, they want the science to support them feeling good. They don't want the science to make them feel badly. And particularly in the area of sexuality, goodness only knows, they want to know that they're normal. Well, they, want to know, they want to know that what, what is something that they find sensual and sexual within their own construct is perfectly safe and it's okay, as opposed to having it labeled you are not okay. That, and, and having worked in psychiatry, that is, I can tell you that when people are given that kind of uh, a label of any kind, whether it's, you know, whatever diagnosis they're given, it fundamentally altered them. 
You know, it's like the same thing that uh, ends up happening when you tell someone that um, they're learning disabled. If you tell someone that, oh, well, I have determined that you are um, anorgasmic, well, you don't really know. And if you say someone has sexual aversion, they may be adverse to the fact that someone smells badly. So, I mean, <laughs> that's, which, is, you know, which is a major turnoff, <laughs> but... You're right. (laughs) But the important thing is, that's why I always, you know, and you know I'm calling you up all the time going, okay, by the way, what's the study? Who did this? What's going on? Tell me the details. And you're constantly feeding me, you know, kind of like being my eyes and ears on the, the science behind things. Because... Well, for most people, when they hear anything to do with anything scientific or research, their eyes go like this, their eyes go in the back of their heads, and they're like, oh, I can't even listen to it. Yeah. But that's the good database and good science is the thing that helps you to understand things. And for me, when, you know, when we have done, you know, presentations in different places, I know that men have come up to me and women afterwards and they've asked that, you know, that one question. They they didn't feel they could. I mean, I've just spent 10 days in Latin America speaking in uh, Monterrey, Mexico City, Guatemala City, El Salvador, pardon me, San Salvador, and then Panama City. And one of the things that so struck me is how these couples really didn't even have any basis or background to be able to even have conversations about sexual pleasure. They had conversations about sex to have children, but they hadn't had the conversations about sex and pleasure. And I mean, hello, let's have a coffee here. The reason people have sex is because it feels good. Well, and as um, one uh, gentleman that we both know uh, and he's a Baptist minister, and he's also... <laughs> ah, Bill Staten. Yes, and he's wonderful. And his comment was, if God didn't intend you to enjoy sex, he wouldn't have made it feel good. This is so true. This and I, so thought, true. I thought, bravo. Exactly. And, you know, American Baptist clergy, it's like, go, Bill, go. We have 15 seconds left. Dee Dee, thank you so much for being on my show, for, you know, giving people insight into the Cochrane Group, into the, the gentleman who has the book Bad Science, Ben Goldacre, and people can reach you on LinkedIn, correct? Absolutely. Thank you, my dear. Big hug. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for being a part of Sex Talk with Lou on TogiNet with host Lou Paget. Every week, this will be your chance to be a fly on the wall and learn about one of the most important parts of our health, our sexual health. Join Lou Paget. She 